Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. You're further away, they're nearer. It's all very confusing. <laughs> Many years ago, uh, in our church in London, we had a small group of deaf people. And someone called Fred used to come and sign for them. After a while, we discovered that Fred, if, if, if Fred thought the message was too difficult or unsuitable for his group, he would simply preach some other message <laughs> and we wouldn't know. <laughs> now, that's what I initially felt like doing this morning. When, when Craig told me the passage that had been allocated to me, I wasn't that excited. Um, and on the principle that when the cat's away, the mice can play, I might have got away with it, but we've got one elder in the corner keeping an eye on me. But actually, as I began looking at the passage uh, at the beginning of last week, uh, I soon discovered, of course, that God's got lots to say to us through this passage, for far more than I've got time for this morning. Um, as I see it, this passage, which we'll read in a minute, is about rejection and how to deal with it. There are, of course, very many forms of rejection that we can face. We may, for example, apply for a job uh, and even get an interview, and then we receive a rejection. Oh, we're actually lucky if we get an answer at all these days. And, of course, the same would be if, if you were to write a book or a novel or something more serious. You've got to be prepared for rejection, many times from many publishers. And in the end, it may still not be accepted. Perhaps the most difficult form of rejection to cope with is when we offer friendship to someone uh, and we are rebuffed. The extreme case, of course, is when we ask someone to marry us, I'm not talking about the minister, uh, and they say no. No doubt you can think of many, many occasions when you have suffered some kind of rejection. And it would be helpful for us as Christians uh, to look at ways of dealing with those forms of rejection. Uh, but that isn't what our passage is about. Our passage is very clearly about the rejection that we may face when we attempt to witness to others and to communicate the good news about Jesus. So, before we actually get into today's little section, some of you weren't here last week anyhow, let's remind ourselves of the context. It's uh, the beginning of Luke chapter 10. Thank you. Which is there? A bit small. Okay. It goes like this. Well, it's headed, Jesus sends out the 72. That's in the NIV that I'm using. But as Craig pointed out last week, some Bibles say Jesus sent out 70, and some say 72. That's because the evidence of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament is very finely balanced, and we can't be sure which is original. It probably says something like this in the footnote in your Bible, but I've discovered that most of us don't look at the footnotes in our Bibles. The print is too small. Anyhow, 70 or 72, we can't be absolutely sure why Jesus might have chosen either of those figures. 
Uh, we don't know which is correct. It doesn't affect the substance uh, or, uh, of the account or the message. And if there's anyone here who still sort of feels you don't understand it or you're troubled by that, come and see me afterwards. That's all I'm going to say about that. Otherwise we get too technical. Anyway, I'm going to read then um, this section. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those who are there who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Very good advice for missionaries in foreign countries to be eating what you're given. Caterpillars and things like that. And then we come to uh, our section, thank you, uh, which I've headed just Jesus' instructions. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So, when a pair of disciples were to enter a town and, and face rejection, they weren't simply to leave, they were told to perform this symbolic gesture of wiping off the dust of the town which had stuck to their sandals. We're told that Jews travelling outside Palestine were required to shake themselves free of Gentile dust when they returned home to avoid polluting the land. So it's a common practice. And in effect, the disciples would be treating that town as a heathen town. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected his message. Uh, and, and they're indicating the, the, the awful significance and implications of, of rejecting the re representatives of Jesus. The kingdom of God, his saving and healing power, has come near to them and they've rejected it. They've had an opportunity of welcoming the representatives of Jesus, as he says a bit later in verse 16 when we get there, whoever listens to you listens to me. But the reverse is also true. Whoever refuses to listen to the disciples of Jesus is refusing to listen to Jesus himself. And so Jesus spells out the consequences of a town like that that rejects his messengers, refuses the opportunity to experience the saving and healing power of the kingdom of God. And on the final day of judgment, they would face a worse punishment than that which the people of that notoriously wicked city, Sodom, will face. This is what Jesus is saying. If then we turn to the book of Acts, we find that Paul and his companions are actually following the same procedures 
as those that Jesus is instructing his disciples with here. Luke, who of course was the author of Acts as well, tells us that when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch in Pisidia and the Jewish leaders stirred up persecution against them and had them expelled from the region, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them. The Jews had had a, an opportunity of listening to a very long sermon, really, from Paul in the synagogue, and it came to a climax in these words, I want you to know that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, uh, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So the Jews were given the first opportunity to hear the good news. That was Paul's policy. Wherever he went, start in the synagogue. But when the majority of them rejected that message, he would turn to the Gentiles, and then many of them believed his message. And then we get Paul and Barnabas uh, using this gesture of shaking off the dust from their feet, which intended to impress those unbelieving Jews that they've rejected the opportunity to receive the gift of eternal life. And all they have to do, all they have, is to face the judgment of God. This is all very serious this morning, I might tell you. Something similar occurred, actually, when Paul, Silas and Timothy were in Corinth. As always, Paul began his preaching in the synagogue. He gave the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers the opportunity of, of, of hearing and receiving the good news about Jesus. But when the Jews opposed him uh, and became abusive, this time Luke tells us he shook out his clothes in protest against them. Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And we find Paul using similar words when he's saying farewell to the uh, elders in, in the Ephesian church. I declare to you today, I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. All the references are on the screen if anybody's interested in where, where my quotes come from. Right? Now, though, the, the, Paul's language, when he talks about being innocent of people's blood... Uh, seems to derive from uh, God's words to the prophet Ezekiel. This is in chapter 3 of Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I've made your watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways, in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sins and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sins, but you will have saved yourself. And Ezekiel was then told that the same principle applies when he sees a righteous person falling into sin. So it seems that Paul saw himself uh, uh, like Ezekiel, as a spiritual watchman, warning both unbelievers and believers of the consequences of their sinful ways. The big question, of course, is, that's all very interesting, but what, are we expected to be watchmen? Does God expect, only just evangelists, <laughs> just ministers, are all of us expected to be watchmen, warning people of the consequences of what will happen if they 
reject Jesus? Some things to think about this morning. I'm, I'm throwing out questions more than perhaps answers, but you know. Um, you didn't leave me to do all the work. If we return then to these instructions that Jesus gave to the 35 or 36 pairs of disciples, we may ask how far we, and particularly of course missionaries, are intended to follow them. How far were those instructions that Jesus gave his disciples specific to the situation at the time? For example, engaging in evangelism in pairs, as the JWs and the Mormons do, is actually very, very wise procedure. That's a sort of, I would think, almost a permanent principle. Don't go on your own, take somebody with you. Um, and you can support one another, you can pray for one another, you can, uh, you can even say, no, he didn't say that, <laughs> when the police grab you. Um, <laughs> Going without purse or bag or sandals, I'm not sure that's uh, necessary. We don't have to follow uh, what Jesus told these, this, this group of disciples. Expecting people to give us board and lodgings, um, I think that's quite unrealistic in our culture. It wasn't in theirs. Now, of course, as Craig, I think, said last week, the principle here is if we go out in faith, God will provide for us uh, for our needs. How he'll do it uh, will, will, will depend. Again, this business of wiping the dust from our, our feet, or it would, should be mud from our boots, shouldn't it? Um, when people reject our message, that has no meaning, that would have no meaning in our culture. We don't have to do it literally, but we may have to do it metaphorically, as it were. Just in the same way as we say, I'm washing my hands of him, her, um, and we don't actually do it literally, do we? It's a metaphor, you know. I'll wash that man right out of my hair. Um, yeah. But the, the, in other words, we can bring it up to date, can't we? Huh? The, the, the pressing question, you see, is how long do we go on trying to persuade particular people to put their trust in Jesus when they're adamant that they don't see any need for it? This is what I've been grappling with during the week as I've read this passage. What is Jesus saying to us in this passage about people like that? After all, our time and our resources are limited. Certainly missionaries will take this approach. Shouldn't we be going to those who've never heard the gospel if those who've heard the gospel and rejected it are apparently not going to change? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Barbara visits uh, a, a lady of 91 years old um, almost every week, spends time talking about Jesus, and this woman just sees, does no, sees no need. She might say, you've got faith, I, I haven't got it, or something like this, but how long do we go on? Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment we stop praying for our friends, for our family, who, who are not believers, but I wonder whether in some of these situations there comes a, a point where we've got to say, in the most loving way possible, I've explained the gospel to you many times. You've had the opportunity to accept Jesus as your saviour. Unless you change, you will have to face the consequences of your decision. This is hard stuff, folk. This is, you know, I don't find this easy. Because it goes all quite against my, my sort of approach. 
There's a, there's a real need for prayer on this issue. Uh, and I'm throwing it back to you. Why, you know, don't expect me to give you the answer. But there we are. These are the words of Jesus to that particular group of disciples. What are the permanent principles for us? Is there a point at which we say, enough is enough? And then it goes on. Interesting, interesting section now. I've headed Jesus' sadness. Uh, this is the second time in Luke's Gospel. Oh, I'll read it first, sorry. Um, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, would you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades, which the footnote tells us is the realm of the dead. This is the second time in Luke's Gospel where we read Jesus pronouncing woes on certain people. In chapter 6, following the blessings, he goes on and says, Woe to you who are rich, woe to you who are well fed, woe to you when all speak well of you. Now that, that knocks me out. Um, I can't remember who spoke on that passage or what they said, and I don't suppose you can either. Now, in pronouncing these woes, Jesus is speaking like the prophets of the Old Testament, right? If you turn, for instance, to Isaiah chapter 5, there's a series of woes on those who are committing all kinds of social injustices and what the consequences will be for them when God brings judgment upon them. So here in Luke 10, Jesus is described as pronouncing woes on certain towns in northern Galilee where the response to his message has been very poor. This and the parallel passage in, in Matthew is the only mention of this town, Chorazin. Nobody knows exactly where it was, although in 1980 uh, uh, I took a photo of some ruins and I was told they were Chorazin, but they probably weren't. Anyway, it was somewhere near Capernaum, uh, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we may be surprised at this outburst from Jesus uh, when we remember that, that in the earlier chapters of Luke he describes crowds of people in Capernaum and its environs coming to Jesus for healing and exorcism. Luke even says that when Jesus taught in the Galilean synagogues everyone praised him. Yet he was clearly not satisfied with the level of response that he received in these towns. Perhaps those people have been uh, uh, more ready to seek healing than to repent of sins and receive forgiveness. As the Old Testament shows, of course, wearing sackcloth around your loins and throwing ashes or dust on yourself was a typical way of expressing grief or loss or sorrow for sin. Sackcloth, of course, was, was usually made of animal hair, usually a goat, and so one of the Jewish rabbis says it pictures humankind reduced to an animal. It's an act of self-humiliation as well as grief. We don't have to do that either. I'll keep to my ordinary pants. Um, yes. They were, loin they were locked around their loins, yes. We might be surprised, of course, when we read this, that Jesus didn't mention Nazareth, his hometown, 
where after a sermon in the synagogue, the congregation was so furious at what he said, they tried to kill him by pushing him over a cliff. And Mark's account simply says, he could do no miracles there, except lay his hands on a few people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus didn't always get, wasn't always successful, was he? People rejected him, as they do today. Now these words of, of, Luke, of Jesus here in Luke 10, they're highly rhetorical, uh, they're, they're comparative, they're, they're intended for the attention of the disciples. And I think the disciples would have found this shocking. The towns in Galilee are unfavourably compared to two of the most wicked cities described in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus is saying that the, the current generation was less responsive than those notoriously immoral and sinful generations of past ages, and so will suffer more greatly in the final judgment than the current generation. Oh yes, Jesus taught degrees of punishment for wicked and unrepentant people in the final judgment. I wonder if we've ever taken that on board. The more you know about Jesus and the message of the gospel, the greater your responsibility and the eternal consequences if you decide to reject him. That's the principle. Now I'd like to look just a little bit more closely at this word woe. What is its exact nuance here? Is it a harsh, severe pronouncement of judgment? Woe! Or is it a warning of what will happen if people do not repent? Woe! This is, this is going to happen. Or is it rather an indication of the compassion of the heart of Jesus. After all, the Old Testament uh, equivalent word in Hebrew is used to express grief when somebody dies. Alas, alas. This is sad, this is sad. One commentator describes this word as an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. Pretty general, that. So I believe that these woes here expressed the overwhelming sadness of Jesus when he contemplated the towns like Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum, which had witnessed his mighty works, but were still largely unrepentant. And they were facing the awful prospect of the judgment of God and the torment of hell. The Lord, uh, Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? He's very blunt. One commentator writes, in all these instructions, perhaps the thing that best prepared the 70 to be effective evangelists was to stand and witness the profound distress of the Saviour's heart as he thought of the doom that awaited Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum for their folly in refusing to repent. I'm sure that is the, the key to understanding this section. It is the sadness of Jesus. Of course, later in Luke's Gospel, as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, we find him expressing sorrow as he contemplated the fate of the city of Jerusalem. doesn't use the word woe there. Uh, the fact that they'd rejected his desire to protect them. And much later still, of course, uh, when Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, 
And he considers the fact that the majority of Jews have been presented with the, who have been presented with the uh, message of Jesus uh, as their Messiah have re rejected it. Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed off and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. So here we have Jesus, sorrowful about the end of these people. Paul, sorrowful about the, his, the rejection that his own people are, are, are presenting. It's very challenging, isn't it? I mean, how often do I really feel sorrow or pity for those who are rejecting the good news about Jesus? Uh, when I say rejecting, they may just ignore it, but that's, in the end, it's rejection. If you don't accept it, you've rejected it, haven't you? Virtually. Um, sit on the fence for a little while, but not too long. Should we be warning people of the consequences of their rejection? Can we do it in a way that expresses the love of God for them, his sorrow <laughs> that they're rejecting his desire to save them from the consequences of their sin, their godless ways, his longing to forgive them, his longing to welcome them into his kingdom and into his family? Can we express it in that way? Well, it's over to you again. And the last little section, one more verse is poked in. A saying of Jesus, which should be a comfort to those of us who face rejection when we try to communicate the gospel. Verse 16. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Disciples of Jesus are his messengers, his representatives, and to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, his ambassadors, because he is King Jesus, isn't he? Huh? And Paul says, we, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Huh? That's, our, that's our role. That's what we should be doing with all the, the feeling that we, 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 can, we can muster up there. And that means, firstly, that when we share the gospel with others, we're doing it with the authority of Jesus. We're speaking on his behalf, not ours. We didn't invent the message. And it, secondly, it means that when people reject us and our message, we mustn't take it personally. It's not a personal rejection, though it may feel like that. You know, don't shoot the messenger, because I didn't make it up. If we have rightly communicated the gospel with clarity and compassion, then we have fulfilled our responsibility. That's what this passage is saying to us, and that's what, what uh, is it that passage from Ezekiel is saying to us too. If they reject the message, it's not us they're rejecting, it's Jesus. It's God the Father. And we can leave the outcome to him. After all, he is the servant king, isn't he? He's the man of suffering, of sorrow, familiar with pains. And yet his rejection, he was rejected. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Yet that rejection has meant acceptance for us, forgiveness, life. And we can share in the vindication that Jesus received 
because he was a faithful witness. Well, that's, I'm gonna, that's about most of it for now. Let's have that last little, oh yes. There are questions. I've already thrown out a whole lot of questions. Um, for some of us, of course, here this morning, the question may simply be, why have I not accepted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour? What are the reasons? Maybe I'm not actively, firmly rejecting it. Maybe I'm still thinking. Maybe I'm, as I say, sitting on the fence. Well, wait. But, but for how long? Until you've actually accepted it, you've virtually rejected it, haven't you? Why have I, why have I not yet? Don't I realise that this could be my last opportunity? Let's be honest. None of us knows what the future holds. And we have to face that. But for those of us who are believers here this morning, the question is, where is Jesus sending us to spread the good news? He says to this group, this 70-72, he says, I'm sending you, particularly a lot of cities. What's he saying to us? What's he saying to you? To your family? To your neighbours? To your work colleagues? To some other area? in UK, to somewhere else in the world. Can we hear Jesus saying to us, I'm sending you? You're not just deciding to go on your own, uh, off your own back. I'm sending you with all that I've said about your responsibility to speak. And the question is, am I willing to go? Am I willing to say, here am I, Lord, send me. Let's pray, shall we? I don't know whether we've got any musicians. We'll get them in a minute. <laughs> do you want to come up? Who's going to do something? Please do see me afterwards if anything I've said has really troubled you. Please do go and have prayer over there if you really want to, to, to move on, if you want to to move on with God, if you want to accept Jesus as your saviour and help, go there at the end of the service. Put off the coffee and cakes and things. Okay. Let's pray. We bow before you, Heavenly Father. We acknowledge that you are, you are Lord. The Lord Jesus is our King, our saviour. And he says some pretty, pretty strong things to his disciples. And Lord, we're not going to wriggle out of it and say, well, that was them, that was their situation. The basic principles seem to be the same and we, we're listening to what you're saying to us in our situation. And those of us particularly who've been trying to share the gospel for, for years with the same person, Lord, just, just show us what we should be doing or saying to that person. We're going to go on praying for them members of our family, uh, next-door neighbours, friends at work. Lord, it seems as if they're never going to change. We just pray that they may at least understand the issues involved. Help us to fulfil our responsibility, not in a harsh way that says, well, I've, I've done my bit. You're just on your own, mate. No with sadness in our hearts, pleading with them, 
to accept Jesus before it's too late. Maybe some of us here this morning have not yet accepted Jesus. Lord, just help that person to see, to see the issues, to, to see the need, to respond to the prompting of your spirit. And we ask all this in the name and for the glory of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.